This morning, we're building on our study from Luke 14. Jesus' call to his followers to count the cost and to come after him. We add to that now our understanding of Hebrews 10 that was read for us earlier. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But so much the more as we see the day approaching, we should be desiring to be with God's church, to understand its purpose, to rejoice in its advance, to participate in its spread. And so this morning we take these texts along with 1 Corinthians 12 and and focus our study of commitment on a commitment to the local church. As a disciple, I must commit myself to the church. I would commend to you our Sunday school hour. If you weren't here, you could go back and listen to that. We wrestled through what the church is theologically. And after that reminder, we just thought through how do we commit ourselves every week to the engagement with the local church on Sunday? What does that mean for Saturday preparation and Sunday morning focus? Perhaps we could do better at expressing our commitment to the church by being more ready for our worship gathering. Not just in giving ourselves to the worship of the living God, but in giving ourselves in love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have any of you ever been tutored in order to improve your test scores? Maybe you can think back to your high school days might not have been an official tutor, but maybe your good friend was good at algebra, and you thought, hey, can you help me with this? Maybe you took those pre-tests to kind of self-tutor your way in preparation for the ACT or SAT. Well, our study of the Nine Marks series this summer showed us that maybe there's some deficiencies, some weaknesses where we could improve the health of the church. So today is really a tutoring class on the subject of church membership. I don't think we've been real clear on what we mean by church membership. It's not that we didn't have some idea because we, we were pretty intentional in the early days about not speaking a lot about church membership because we felt like in a, as a church plant, People were quick to come, and all they wanted to talk about was join, and let's see this church grow, and we were kind of like, well, hold on here. Let's get to know you a little bit. Let's see what's going on. But over the years, that kind of led to a laissez-faire approach to membership uh, and a lack of clarity, ultimately. I think this is evidenced by the fact that there are at least 20 families currently attending who are not members, in large part because... It's never been presented to you. You've just never heard anything about membership from us as leaders. So the fault rests with us as leaders for this lack of clarity. So I want to take this tutoring class this morning to see if indeed we can clarify what we mean by membership and based on that definition to invite you to begin that process of expressing your commitment to this local body. Luke 14 defines the Christian life as following Jesus. 
Now, we could expand on that teaching of Jesus by taking Old Testament example and New Testament teaching, and we would understand that God's people, those who say, I'm following Jesus, they live out their discipleship in the context of a community. We do that with other believers. In the Old Covenant, it's because you were born into families that were part of a big family, the descendants of Abraham, which became then the family of Jacob and ultimately the nation of Jacob or Israel. So it was kind of, you were by default in your group where you lived out your Jewish faith. In the New Covenant, we don't call ourselves Jews as the people of God or people of Israel. We call ourselves the church. But that is our community where we live out our Christian faith together. By speaking of a community, a family of believers, or the church, we raise three key questions. Number one, what is the church? Number two, what is church membership? Number three is procedural church membership. Is an official church membership even biblical? I want to answer these three questions this morning, but I'll note having your name on a list and becoming a church member isn't the sum total of commitment. And so in this series, we're going to talk about other commitments that really flesh out the heart of what it is to commit to a body of believers. But the label we're slapping on that commitment to the church is this idea of membership. You're probably most likely prepared to answer the first question, what is the church? Let's talk about it briefly, but I have a feeling you you have a good idea already and could probably come up with some good definitions of the church or at least some characteristics of the church. Let's start with the biblical language. The word for church in our New Testament is the word to call out. It was a common word, not not a spiritual word per se, It just meant those that were called out to gather in an assembly. So assembly was really a synonym. But that assembly could have been the ones called out to have a discussion about politics. Or it could have been the called out ones, the the assembly of those who gathered in the Colosseum to watch the events there. It simply meant those who, who came out and gathered for some reason. The church kind of took this on as as kind of a special word to them because they knew something of John 10 where the good shepherd's voice calls his sheep. And so they kind of sanctified the word a little bit and kind of claimed it as their own. And so the called out ones was the first great definition of God's New Testament people, the church. They understood his calling them to salvation. Isaac Watts wrote of God's invitation to salvation and the resulting feast that would be ours in the kingdom of God. When he said, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a dreadful choice and rather starve than come? Watts marveled at the call of God that invites us to partake ultimately of Christ 
and then that marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice and follow me. Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The call of God goes out in the gospel, and it draws men to himself. The sheep hear his voice, and they come. Jesus taught this, and even as he taught it there to the crowds, he said, and there are many more of my sheep yet to come, which shows us our commission to announce his call of the gospel still. We are the called out ones. We are his church. Generally, we could define the church as the people of God in all ages. We could look back through church history and hear the great names of the past. We could go to the Bible and hear great names, and and we recognize these were the people of God whether it was thousands of years ago or years to, yet to come. Those who are God's people are what we would call the church. And yet there's so much more to the definition than just being the people of God because we think of how do you become the people of God? What does it look like to be the people of God? So while generally we would say the people of God in all ages, we could get more specific and say we're talking about those we call Christians, and you can see the definition there, who gather together for worship to live out the gospel and to display the glory of God's holiness and love. That's as many words as I wanted to cram into the definition. We could probably expand on that, but we start with the idea of being Christian. Whatever it means to be a member of a church should mean that you have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and that people care to see that lived out. Who truly are the Christians? We don't need to fill the church with thousands, many of whom we're not really sure if they know the Lord or not. So Christians is important. Are they genuinely converted? The together is important because that speaks to the heart of the word of assembly and gathering. Is there a sense of unity, togetherness? Because the Psalms would tell us that that is a sweet thing, to live together in unity. Oh, that's true of the church, but you can see it in good marriage or bad marriage, the sweetness of unity. You can see it in the life of the church, Unity can be sweet, and the lack of unity can be agonizing. You see it in politics every day with the stories that you read. You see it in worldviews that are communicated clearly now by our culture. Unity can be sweet, and the disunity can be troubling and traumatic. Some of you would greatly look forward to a, a massive family reunion with all of your family. Others of you would come up with any reason you could to not be able to attend that reunion because you, you, you dread the divisiveness, the disunity. The church is made up of Christians who together worship. They live out the gospel. Philippians says side by side. And in that living out the gospel, they do that in a life of holiness. We're set apart to the Lord. Be holy as I am holy, he says to us. 
So the church is a testimony to the world of God's transforming power. You don't live the way you used to. God has changed you and made you something else. You're a new creature. You were once a slave and chained to sin, and now you're a servant of righteousness. Holiness should be evident in God's church. And John 13 tells us that love is this beautiful characteristic of those who follow Jesus Christ. And the watching world should see holiness and love on display in your relationships with God's people. Not just in this local gathering, but with all the Christians that we do life with in our city, in the workplace, in the marketplace. The local church family is the place where you demonstrate the reality of your belonging to God's people. You can say you're part of God's family, but the proof is in living together as brothers and sisters. That's how we know. Now, this sense of belonging to God's family that helps us us answer the first question, what is the church, leads us to the second question. What is church membership? What is church membership? Now, the answer to this question may vary from church to church to some degree. Because church membership, those words together don't come to us through the biblical text and we read that chapter about church membership, which tells us what it looks like, how it should be practiced in the church. So the lack of clarity that we're trying to correct is simply kind of us articulating what do we think membership is? What are we talking about when we say this? So that when people do come and say, yeah, I'm here. I want to be a part of this church family. What does that mean? What do I have to do We simply clarify, well, here's what we mean when we talk about church membership. So here's a definition for us. An expression of two-way commitment. An expression of two-way commitment. Notice it's not some monumental act or step that you have to take. It's just an expression Because we're not saying, oh, here's exactly where it is in the Bible. We're simply saying, here's a label, church membership. What it does is it expresses your commitment, what's in your heart. You feel like you belong and want to love and serve with these people. Okay, that's what we're saying is church membership. It's an expression of that commitment. But the way we're phrasing it here is this is a two-way commitment. So let's address both ways. The first would be an, an expression of commitment from the member to the church. What commitments need to be expressed? Number one, submission. I know it's a bad word in our society. Submission with a lot of Google searches, is going to lead you straight to another word, abuse. And that's unfortunate because that's the sinful heart of man rejecting biblical submission and casting it in light of the worst possible manifestation of authority being abuse. Does abuse exist? Of course it does. It always has. Should submission exist? 
Of course it should. God has designed it to be a beautiful part of relationships and of unity. So let's be clear about what submission would look like as a commitment of the church member to the church. First, it would be submission to the church's doctrine. Submission to what the church teaches. Remember, the member is coming to the church that has an established body of doctrine and saying, I want to be here. That must include submission then to the teaching of that church. Now, think through this carefully. A church member may not be in 100% agreement with the church's teaching, or they may not have 100% understanding of the church's teaching, but they should be able, if they want to pursue being a part of that church, to say, I will willingly submit to the teaching of this church. Obviously, if at some point in their growth of understanding or their own conviction and study of the scriptures, they come to a different understanding and cannot function within that body, well then certainly we would encourage them for the sake of the church to find another place that teaches what they feel the Bible does say. But when you think this through, not everyone in this congregation of on a full Sunday, 180-some, 90 people, may completely understand or come down in exactly the same place on, let's say, uh, some of the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrine of election, or the doctrine of the atonement and the scope of who that was for. Not everybody may agree with the church's doctrinal statement on the teaching of end times, When is Christ coming? Some may say, I'm waiting for the rapture. Others are going to say, well, we don't think there's a second and a third coming. We think there's just one second coming. And the debate could fire right up. That's okay in the sense of we may not all be at the same place of our understanding of Scripture, but we must all be at the place of saying, but as I come to this congregation and see its body of teaching, I'll submit to that. I'll I'll strive to understand that. I'll strive to grow in my understanding of Scripture and won't be divisive in the way that I communicate my ideas. doesn't mean you can't ever ask questions. It doesn't mean you couldn't uh, pursue dialogue on doctrinal issues. doesn't mean you wouldn't walk away from that conversation. Man, I just don't see that but you aren't seeking to cause disunity in the body. You understand and submit to the doctrine of the church. Submission would also mean submission to the church leaders. Hebrews 13 is clear. It uses two words, obey and submit to those who have authority, to the leaders of the church. Now be clear, it's not because church leaders are infallible. That would be papism the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Church leaders are not infallible. No, we don't submit to them because they're always right. We submit to them because of God-designed, word-based authority. So one, God has designed leadership in the church. It's, It's no different than our understanding of God's design for leadership in the family. So 
We're not saying someone's more important, someone's less important. Someone's more gifted, someone's less gifted. That is, that's the wrong language of leadership in the church. It's the position of headship leadership in the church. And authority is only based on God-given authority to lead. And we add to that not only God-given authority, but also word-based authority. My authority over you as a pastor, which could sound harsh and like, whoa, wait a minute, you don't have authority over me. Well, let's think this through. My authority over you as as a pastor has to be based on biblical truth. My authority over you isn't to tell you which job to take or whether or not you should be married or how, how much money you should give away or whether you can go to the theater and see a Spider-Man movie, or there, there are all kinds of practical things that I can't go to the scripture and say, based on God's word, I'm telling you, you, you need to stop doing that. Now, based on God's word, and either it's clear teaching or it's principles, I can come and say, listen, I, I do not see the wisdom in you leading your family this way. And you should take that with great seriousness because that would be God-given and word-based authority. But just develop an antenna for spiritual authority that begins to wander from scriptural truth and begins to wax eloquent about all the other things that they claim they have authority in your life over. God-designed authority, that's headship in the church, and word-based authority, that's soul care, that's applying scripture to your heart with wisdom. You should hear that. But it's not about the man. It's not, it's not about, oh, they think they're perfect, or no, it's keep this in the realm that God has communicated church leadership to us. He has designed positions of headship, and he says they can exercise word authority over the flock. So much so that God is clear they're going to give an account for how they did that. So they'd better not wander and meddle in people's lives and and use the pulpit as a bully pulpit for their views and their ideas and their convictions and the way they would apply it to their own families even, that's not their job to to make everybody do it the exact same way. Their job is to stand in the place of Christ, the chief shepherd, and to care with the word. So submit to church doctrine, submit to church leaders, and their submission to one another. When you come to understand submission, you recognize that there is a submission to the body of the church. Ephesians 5 teaches us that in the gathering of God's people, of spirit-filled believers, and that's the context, there in Ephesians 5, walk in the spirit. And, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the spirit instead. So that spirit-filled life, leads to a submission to one another where we strive for unity. We consider the collective voice of wisdom and a multitude of counselors, Proverbs says. We recognize I have my ways and I think I'm right, but 
when people in my own church, the body of Christ, spirit-filled believers are saying, hey, I would think that through a little more, or have you thought of doing it this way? Hey, in your marriage, do you think your wife would appreciate if you did this? Or, hey, I saw the way you dealt with your kid. I, maybe try this sometime. Are we going to bristle at that, or will there be a spirit of submission that the church is designed to help me get it right? When we consider the members' commitment to the church, it's expressed first in submission. Second, it would be expressed in participation. Participation for the common good. That's the language in 1 Corinthians 12, just before the paragraph we read together in the affirmation of faith. Speaking of how God has not only brought you into the body of Christ, but he has gifted every one of you, and every one of your gifts, it says, was given for the common good. You don't express your gift. Now we're talking the common bad, right? We're missing something. We're not as healthy as we could be if you were engaged fully with the idea of committing to the church in participation for the common good of God's church. Most of you would not hesitate to say, I want what's good for God's church. But then you... you you sell yourself short and make excuses for why you're probably not as helpful or maybe I'm not the one to do that instead of just simply asking the question, God, what do you want me to do? Because Moses can keep telling us he's not a good speaker, but God had readied him. Moses had been trained in the rhetoric of Egypt, Acts tells us. He was probably a gifted speaker, but somehow 40 years in the wilderness and not doing that has led him to the conclusion he's probably not as good at it as God thinks. Well, we don't need to tell God what he thinks. Let's just ask him what he thinks and then throw ourselves into obedience, participation for the common good. Those are the obligations of the member to the church. Remember, a two-way commitment. What are we asking from the member? Submission and participation. What are we asking from the church then in committing to that one who says, I think this is where I need to be? Two other commitments then from the church to the member. Number one, affirmation. Affirmation of one's profession of faith. It's the local church that God will use to verify my claims to be a Christian. They will know me by my fruit. Now, Romans 8 is clear that the Holy Spirit can bear witness with our spirit, and we can know that we are children of God, and thereby cry, Abba, Father. You could read 1 John and see a number of tests, we might call them, to see if you are in the faith. So there's there's that evidence that you should see of the righteous, fruitful Christian life. But lest we deceive ourselves, the church congregation should be that place where the church says, yes, we hear that you've professed faith in Christ and we're seeing the way it's lived out in your life. So much so that throughout church history, the Lord's Supper has been carefully guarded so that 
nobody who is just professing faith but living like the world was allowed to participate at the Lord's table. They would call that fencing the Lord's table. Build a wall around it to make sure that it's not easy to get to. You come only when you recognize it's all of grace, a grace that transforms us from slaves to sin to servants of righteousness. That's why many churches would practice what we would call closed communion. Unless you're a member of this church in good standing, recognized by the rest of the believers, then we ask that you not participate. We've not taken that step, but we would urge those believers that aren't members here that may be visiting to make sure that they examine themselves and their faith is in Christ and they are in good standing with a church. Because that's the the, the proof, they're the ones that give the nod that say, we're seeing it too. That, that's the fruit of conversion in their lives. Without this affirmation, church discipline loses its, its strength. Because in church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18, we're simply stating that we're not seeing the fruit specifically of repentance in the life of that one who says they're a Christian. So the church simply says, listen, we're not seeing that. You may be a Christian and really just entrenched in sin. We're simply saying we're not seeing it fleshed out right now. We can't give that affirmation. But the church should do that for members. That's why God has said, I'll put you in this body of spirit-filled believers. I think many have struggled with assurance of salvation over the years. But frankly, for the hundreds and hundreds of people I've talked to about assurance of salvation, probably thousands when I add up my camp experience dealing with teenagers, I would say probably 95% of those conversations revolved around one small little central part of the solar system, and that was that one person. I can't, I can't come up with an, enough conversations to put on one hand with people that said, I've talked to my pastor in my local church, and even though I'm struggling with assurance, they say they see the fruit of salvation in my life. I, I honestly don't know if I've ever heard somebody say that. Because we've made this matter of assurance of salvation a private, personal matter. Well, for someone who admittedly may be weak in faith, Read the great confessions of the church and realize that not all faith may be the same in believers. Some of you have never questioned your salvation. It's right there in black and white. I see what God said and I believe it. I'm done. No more discussion. Some of you don't think that way. And you're bombarded often with troubling thoughts that maybe you're not even going to heaven. And great men of the faith, some of the great people that you would love, uh, have struggled with this. You could read Spurgeon and realize how the devil would attack him and make him wonder if, if he was doing anything for the kingdom of God. So if you're one of them, Romans 8 still works. The Holy Spirit can still help you with this. But God has also designed the church to come alongside and use the word to minister to you. So the church is designed to affirm one's profession of faith. Secondly, 
the church should commit to oversight of one's discipleship and growth. The church should be known for pushing people to take another step. I, I can't think of which families right now have that toddler that's standing up and holding on to the couches of the sofa but isn't quite ready to step out and get across the room to mom or dad. But what do we do? We coax them to do that. You know, we're pushing them probably before they're ready to take that step and they won't do it, right? They're hanging on to the couch and they're thinking, no, not going to let go. I know my legs and they're not going to hold me up. But we're coaxing them, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. That's the nature of the church. Yes, you're following Jesus, but we're saying, come on, you can do this. And Ephesians 4 tells us that the whole body is in this together. That it's not about, hey, those of you that are really gifted, take off and run as fast as you can. The rest of us, maybe we'll catch up. No, it says until the whole body together comes to the unity that's found in Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We do that together. So it's like, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And we coax the next spiritual step. That's what Growing Grace, this campaign is about. Sure, we want to raise a few dollars. We'd love to invite everyone to lunch in the activity center after church. But it's, it's more than that. It's coaxing you to take another step. Some of you would be considered spiritual giants. You know the word. You walk with the Lord. Your, your, your weekly routine is, is a beautiful picture of God's promise. He really will sanctify us. Others might be a little behind that pace. But together, we are encouraging other, each other with this hope. We can do this. By God's grace, we can grow a little bit more. We ask the question, Lord, what do you want next from me? What's next? And so the church is committed to affirmation and to oversight. What that shows us is membership is about commitment. It's not just a status, not just a job. It's not passive, but it's active. It's not merely what you can get. Well, I think this church has what I'm looking for. Well, that's only half the equation. Like the church might be saying, no, we're not sure you have what we're looking for. Because both are supposed to be looking to give and thereby to receive. So it's a commitment, a two-way commitment. That's how we want to think of church membership. That way, anything we document, anything we do, any procedures, any steps, it becomes secondary to the, the purpose. It's, a, it's a, an expression of commitment. Well, that leads us to one final question. Is procedural membership biblical? Do we need to keep a list of names? Do we need to have a membership class? Does it need to be formal? Do we need to have a body to vote on things? Is, is that procedural thought of church membership biblical? Is it kind of extra biblical? Or is it even unbiblical? We kind of want to know so that we know how much weight to put on this process. So we begin with this statement. There is no clear command for joining. No clear command for joining. Now, we could go to Acts and read 
After Pentecost, there were added to the church 3,000. Clearly, they had a number. They kind of knew something of how many, and they were added to the church. But I'm saying there's no clear command in the Bible to churches, hey, have elders in every church, Acts 14, Paul says. And, and hey, if there's a need, have some deacons do the serving work. Let them serve the body. And then, oh, and don't forget, you, you must have your membership roles updated monthly, you know, by the last day of the month. We don't see it. The procedures are not commanded. So the language of joining is not a biblical imperative that we feel compelled to come to you and say, hey, you've been here for four or five weeks now. You need to obey the command to join the church. We don't have that language in the scriptures. So what do we have? Well, if there's no clear command for joining, I would argue there is a consistent emphasis on defining the church. May not be a clear command to join the church, but there is consistent language in the scriptures for defining the church. Therefore, we're going to say church membership, the expression of two-way commitment, could happen even if a church had no roles or membership lists. Frankly, it's been happening here with many of you that have been around a long time and may not be on the roll. The point is, church membership would fall into this category of extra-biblical. We find language that defines the church, and so we'll try to define our local church with some kind of membership process. It's not unbiblical, don't do this, but it's not biblical in the sense of command. It's extra biblical. It's our application of what we're seeing. And what we're seeing is a consistent emphasis on defining the church. Think about it in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, because of their sin, lose fellowship with the Lord. And the first thing we hear about is a boundary. The angel of the Lord set on the garden to clearly define the separation. From there, we learn lessons like, who is in the ark? Hebrews says, eight souls. And we know who is not in the ark. With the promise to Abraham, we know that the descendants of Abraham will be these covenant people. And that's defined by their descent. And ultimately, in the New Testament, by their faith. With the family of Israel, we know who is Israel and who is Egypt. When Jacob's family moves there, they live in Goshen. But what's interesting is that by the time the plagues are unfolding, we read in Exodus chapter 8 that God said he's going to send the plagues, and specifically this one was the flies. But he says, so that there will be a clear distinction between my people and their people, there will be no flies in Goshen. There was a distinction of God's people. On their way to the promised land after the exodus, Moses comes down from the mountain, shatters the two tablets of stone in his anger at the people's idolatry. Bad choices. But rightly asks for a definition of God's people and says to the Levites, who is on the Lord's side? And they declared their allegiance and then took up their swords against those who did not. 
a clear definition of God's people. Exodus 19, we referenced earlier, the Lord was making it clear that this family, which would now be a nation, was set apart to him. So that from this point on, in the language of the law that God would give at Sinai, there would be his people and there would be the other category, the foreigner or the stranger. So when you read through the law in Leviticus, you realize there's the law for God's people defined as they are and the outsiders, how we treat the outsiders, the foreigners that come among us, and even exceptions for how the outsider can become part of God's people, though they are not genetically the family of Abraham and Jacob. Clear definition. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus is seeking to define followers We know who is added to the church in Acts. We know who is in and who is out of the church by the decision of the majority, it says in 1 Corinthians 5 in the matter of church discipline. 1 Timothy 5 refers to the enrolled list of widows. So we know lists aren't out of the question. They knew who was in their churches. 1 Peter 2 says we are numbered among the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. Philippians echoes our citizenship in God's kingdom. These are all defining terms. And most clearly, Revelation 21, your name as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, written in the Lamb's book of life. So God defines his entire church by individual names throughout his dealings with humanity makes us think we're not wandering too far. We're not unbiblical to simply say we feel comfortable making an effort to define God's church in this local assembly. So is it biblical to have procedural church membership? We're going to say yes. Not by command, but by application of principles that God works to define his people. Not to produce pride. Read Deuteronomy 7 and 8, to be sure, because when God quizzes Israel about this, he says, do not think this is because you were better than all the other peoples of the earth. You weren't. You were the least of them. But because I set my love on you, you have become the people of God. So there there is no arrogance or pride in thinking we are the people of God. If anything, you should sense an incredible responsibility to make known the fame of Jesus' name to all those people in this very week that you will encounter that are not the people of God. The question is, how can we better demonstrate our commitment to God's church? How can that be on display in the local congregation where we gather. Further, if by church membership we mean that you're committed to the people of the local church in this place until God moves you elsewhere, then will you consider membership at Grace Bible Church? If this is as simple as an expression of commitment to this local body, and giving this body the responsibility and privilege of saying yes, and we commit to you as well, then let's not wring our hands a lot about this. Uh, Let's check the boxes, 
get through this quick process and, and get on with our commitments to serving and loving one another. Some of you aren't on the list of members at Grace Bible Church, but you have been functioning as members for years. So just bear with us and make it official, all right? Some of you are going to feel silly, like, you know how long I've been here and have expressed that I'm here, and I say, I know, I get it. Help us, bear with us, so that we can say we've now made this intentional effort to define the local church as we think we should and probably should have been doing. Others of you are new, and you're stepping into this thinking, great, what do I do? Well, here's the next step. We want to meet with anyone wanting to become a member, and with so many on the list, the easiest thing will be sign up in one of the time slots. There's a sign-up sheet in the lobby. I'm going to send out an email that you can just click respond to the email. Um, Wednesday night this week, Tuesday night the next week, Monday night the following week, Saturday morning if that doesn't work. And if none of those times work, then I'll swing by your house and we'll take care of it. Um, Because we want this month to be a a wide-open month for, if you're ready for the two-way expression of commitment, then let's do that. This, This is not complicated. It's simply saying, I think this is where God has me right now. It's not forever and always. God may move you on. That, that's his prerogative. We're just saying right now, until God says otherwise, I need to be committed to a local body, and this is it. This will enable us to announce candidates for membership in the month of November, welcome new members in December, and set us on the course for the new year for some of the big decisions that we want everyone to be a part of if indeed you're saying, I'm here, this is my church. Uh, we've got some work to do, and we want you to be able to say, yes, I'm here. It's my church. We've got buildings to build. We've got people to reach, and we want you to be saying and feeling the responsibility of this is my church. We need to do this. Our pastors are trying to equip us to do the work of ministry. Who are we supposed to invest in? Who do we equip? We want to know who those people are. That's the idea of defining our commitments. So may God help us to to fan the flame in our hearts for God's people. When you look around this room, there's some you like and some you don't, right? You probably wouldn't say that out loud if I asked you. There's some that you just naturally gravitate towards, let's put it that way, and others you don't know very well. But this is where God has you. And the best thing for your own heart may be to say, okay, God, if this is where you want me to gather to worship and be a part then I want my heart to to feel and to say, I'm committed. This is my place. God's brought me here. I'll commit and I'll feel the church committed to me. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this matter. Maybe your church in the first century didn't wrestle with the language of church membership, and maybe we shouldn't have wrestled with it as much as we have and just kept it simple. We just want to hear that language of commitment. And so work in our hearts so that in these coming weeks, as we hear this word, it will become more and more what we really believe we're doing. So spur us on to greater love and to good works for the good of your church 
and for the glory of your name outside of your church. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.